Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you to join us for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community and the excitement of Discovery. I'm your host, Ed Pocock, and today I'm joined by fellow Archon and Vault Tour runner-up, Finn Cornish. Finn, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for having me, Ed. It's good to be here. Today, we're going to be discovering the secret behind Finn's Vault Tour success, in a focus topic where he will be sharing all of his insights, tips and tricks on how to get the edge in sealed play. He'll also be talking a little bit about Vault Tours and what the newer players among you can maybe expect from that. So for those of you who are new to this podcast, every couple of episodes we will be introducing a different member of the Keyforge community. In the first episode, we'll learn a little bit about them and invite them to share their unique perspective on the game with the discussion topic that matters to them. The second episode is all about bottling that excitement of discovery, where our guests share with us the deck they consider to be truly unique to themselves. Before we dive into our focus topic, let's kick things off, getting to know Finn a bit better. So, Finn, tell us a bit about how you discovered Keyforge. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My older brother is a big Magic fan. And, you know, one day we came to his house and he was like, oh, there's this really cool game called Keyforge. And I was like, oh, I've never heard about it before. So he whipped out two decks. We had a game and it was always like, I immediately liked it. I was immediately like, yeah, this is, this has something to it. Um, and someone that's has a history of playing lots of digital card games. Um, I've, I've always been looking for something that has a gimmick, that has a theme, that has something that really just clicks with me. Um, and yeah, Keyforge was kind of just it. It just immediately felt like the game that I wanted to invest my time and money into. And we were just talking about, uh, before we started running the podcast, about how that theme of the game really just mashes up with how it plays, the design of the game. And uh, that hits true to you. Yeah, absolutely. As, as someone that loves design um, and thinks that theme is one of the like, really important aspects of a card game or any game, really, um, the way that the theme of this game impacts the design and the design of this game impacts the theme is just awesome. I love it. And you do a bit of game design yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. In my spare time, kind of squabble with a bit of card design and, and, and board game design, which hopefully will hope be, uh, make something in the future, which will be worthwhile. Well, FFG, if you're listening... So we're going to be hearing in a little while about how Finn went from picking up his first couple of decks to that Voltor success. And that Voltor success was in sealed play. But Finn, is that the format you feel most comfortable with in Keyforge? Yeah, absolutely. I think that sealed is 
is what Keyforge was made for. Um, it it's just there's there's no other game like it. It's called a unique deck deck game for a reason. Um, the 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 aspect of just pulling a deck out and playing with it is so much fun. Um, and I think that when it comes to competitive play, it really adds an extra level which other games aren't able to do. Awesome. So thinking about some variations on the theme here, how do you find sealed adaptive as a format? Is that something where you feel can take the game to a next level? A lot of Keyforge organized players feel that adaptive is the game that truly is the pinnacle of Keyforge knowledge and ability. Do you feel the same? Uh, yeah, in, in a way, I think that um, adaptive gives you the opportunity to not only play your deck, understand your deck, but you then have to be able to understand the deck you're playing against to a point where you can pilot it more efficiently than they can to eventually win that second game. And if you're not able to, you then have to take another level of anal- an analysis by comparing the two decks and figuring out what you want to take for going into that third game. Do you want to bet chains on the winning deck or do you simply want to take the the potentially worse losing deck and kind of you know try and make it work against a deck which maybe has you know up to 10 chains or something like that on it so finn every single game has its memorable moments and my question to you is of all of those memorable moments in keyforge what is the most memorable moment you have had playing this game I think I, I, it's going to be a bit of a cliche one, but I'm going to have to go with that final Vault Tour game. Um, I, you, I sat there for for a long time trying to figure out every single possible outcome um, and trying to play to the best of my abilities, and I felt like that is what I did. And then my opponent just had the counter; he had the play, um, and was you know was awesome to watch because I, I thought that was really cool. If, if I was in his shoes, I would have loved to be able to do that, to kind of like um, play that unlocked gateway, to kill the Brent, to steal the Amber, to finally snatch the win. And um, yeah, it was just it was just awesome to be a part of, really. For anyone that suggests that unlocked gateway doesn't have the same power level as gateway to dis, I think try telling that to Finn. I actually disagree. I think unlocked gateway is far superior to gateway to dis. And tell us why. So I think the, the biggest aspect is the the lack of chains that you gain from playing it. Okay. Um, you almost always play Gate of Way of Dis at the end of your turn as yeah. kind of like a, a setup for a future turn or simply to wipe the board. Sure. Um, and with creatures like uh, Dust Imp and Nefru, which are going to gaining you amber upon the death or destruction of those creatures... Um, I think that most people are going to be playing it in that way, kind of towards the end of the towards the end of the turn, um, and it's rare to see someone say gateway to death and then play a lot of creatures. Um, it obviously happens in time to time, but I think where it's rare, so unlock gateway is ultimately the card that you want to be using and has almost no negative effects. So for our newer listeners here, these are both board wipe cards. They are two of the most potent board wipe cards in the game. Uh, Gateway to Dis was the Call of the Archons card that said, destroy all creatures, you gain three chains. Whereas Unlock Gateway, its uh, Age of Ascension equivalent, had an Omega play. So it meant it had to be the last thing that you do on your turn. 
and its ability was exactly the same. It was destroy all creatures. But there is debate in the community on which one is better and which one is more effective. And some people say that at least if you play Gateway to Dis, you have then the ability to build up your board after playing it. Uh, whereas with Unlock Gateway, it has to be the last thing you do in your turn, which means you don't have the ability to play the uh, any other cards afterwards. But as you mentioned, Finn, with, with uh, cards like... Uh, Ember Imp there, you're able to get that destroyed effect and gain Amber with it. Uh, yeah, with uh, with Dust Imp and Nefru and uh, creatures like Tolas as well. Um, yeah, I think, because obviously with Tolas, you can kill all of your opponent's creatures and if there's destroyed effects, you can gain that Amber too. Um, and yeah, I think that also the thematic play of being able to drop the unlock gateway and being the end of your turn and potentially the game the, the winning play i think is just really fun and cool so moving moving forward to to looking at our next set which has been announced uh, we know kind of what's coming we have a huge series of different pictures in varying pixelated quality all over the internet showing us what these things are it is truly a new meaning of spoiler um what would you most like to see in a future set if you could pick anything at all from that game design perspective? Yeah, so Star Alliance is the house that I'm really interested in. Um, and I actually have a, a really awesome idea, which I'm hoping FFG have also <laughs> somehow managed to have the exact same idea as I have. Um, so take notes. Take notes, FFG. So one of the things I really love about the Star Alliance is vehicles. Yeah. Um, and vehicles allow, are allowed to be played as creatures themselves or as upgrades onto other creatures, buffing them. Um, and I just love the idea of being able to just have an insane creature on the board with like three different, four different vehicles and upgrades on top of that. And they're just like this super kitted out super soldier. Awesome. Um, and so this idea that I want is card where or it's like a set of cards almost like how the horsemen work where you always get all four horsemen and i want it to be a set of four upgrades where when and the, the, the upgrades themselves are kind of okay it's kind of like give a creature skirmish give them plus two power give them plus two armor they're not that great as cards um but you always get all four and once you put all four onto one creature you can then sacrifice that creature and it forges you a key for for no cost effectively or it does something equally as insane you know or maybe not as insane but could like wipe the board um it could just gain you a certain amount of amber it could potentially destroy all your opponent's amber and it's that kind of like long play setup that i love because you're kind of you're you're playing this super risky play of like i'm gonna put everything on this one creature but if it works out it's gonna completely change the game um and it's a really direct play in terms of how the how the deck is structured and for those of you listening to our next episode where finn's going to share his most unique deck i think we're going to find out how much finn really loves his decks with grand schemes things with a lot of setup where you can have these big bold brash turns and uh, really change the game on your opponent the other thing i really like about this finn is it seems so natural for the star alliance as well um, I'm imagining a, a creature or a character getting a bit overzealous with the amount of things they're putting on themselves. Nah, one more upgrade's not going to hurt. And maybe they have so many upgrades on themselves that something just goes bang and it affects everything in the game. But it's a nice kind of, it's back to that mashup of how the game plays 
and uh, the law, the kind of theme of, of the game around it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I'm so excited about Star Alliance is its theme. And, you know, with the whole crucible and the law of the game, Star Alliance feels like something really familiar, almost like an kind of old Star Trek aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And I want to be able to see cool blasters and vehicles and spaceships and kind of see how that fits into the world of Keyforge. They almost have the same eye as we would if we were on the crucible um uh, captain val jericho one of the main main characters let's say of the cast of the star alliance and looks to be a cracking card as well i won't spoiler that here but um she is featured on many many of the cards that we've had throughout the game and it is the sort of comment on these cards that you or i would make if we were found ourselves in that situation yeah, absolutely. And I'm super excited to see what future sets bring when, you know, say Mars and Star Alliance are back in the same set and we get to see a deck that has both of those houses and how they interact with each other, the kind of cards that FFG are going to come up with, the thematical cards where, you know, they, you know, obviously Star Alliance and Mars aren't going to like each other. Oh, no. And, oh, you know, no. If, if you've watched any sci-fi TV show ever then you'll know this. And I really want to see the kind of thematic and mechanical uh, things that are going to add to this game regarding those two houses. I'm just imagining Star Alliance making an overture to Mars and getting rebuffed in the most brutal way, uh, which might be good for Mars in the short term, but bad in the long term when the Star Alliance make alliances with everyone else and Mars find themselves all on their own. Absolutely. So, um, moving on, we're going to make one final question, and this is a bit of a fun question. So, Finn, most important question. Which creature of the Crucible do you think would make the best Keyforge player? This could be anyone. It could be any creature, anything featured in the Crucible. Who would be the player you would least want to face at a Vault or Final? Oh, okay, well, that's that's definitely an interesting question. Obviously, won't want to be up against any Brobnar Giants. <laughs> I don't want to beat one of those and get pummeled Intimid- into the intimidation. ground. <laughs> um, who knows what kind of, you know, tricks that a, a, a demon from Dis might have up their sleeve. That could um, that could be interesting. I think but, it's shadows you've got to worry about. <laughs> yes, I mean I think shadows just wouldn't turn up, and you'd find that your wallet and your keys and your phone are gone. <laughs> Um, but I think the best Keyforge player would have to be a Logos creature. It would have to be one of those scientists with three arms and seven brains that can figure out every single possible combination that you could play and beat you in two turns. Maybe uh, Quixo, the designer. I mean, the adventurer. Yeah, I think Quixo's probably got a lot of games under his belt. He's, he's seen a lot of different different decks. I think it's quite likely. And for those who are newer players, Quixo is the card featuring... Uh, our designer-in-chief, Brad Andres's likeness. So moving on to our main topic of the day. Uh, Finn, you came runner-up in a Vault Tour. It's an amazing achievement. This was the Birmingham Vault Tour, which hit the same day as Age of Ascension. So uh, it, for anyone thinking, ah, oh, Finn's had some time to kind of 
muscle up on the cards, get an idea of what's going on. That absolutely wasn't the case. We landed day one and we don't we didn't have the same number of spoilers that we have now about Worlds Collide for Age of Ascension. So we were in the dark to how things are going on, which opened us up to one of the best elements of this game, and that is discovery. So Finn, how did you do it? Um yeah, I think that as you said, there wasn't many spoilers. We didn't have a lot of preparation. Um, and obviously, you know, I was playing a lot of games, but ultimately I think what is so good about the Vault Tour is anyone can win. Um, and you end, you do end up, you know, with a random deck, with a random set of cards, and you've kind of just got to look at them and figure out, you know, what is my play style? What do I want to do? How do I want to go about, you know, trying to, trying to win these games using these cards that you've never used before? Um, which is which is what is really interesting because you can read a card and conceptually understand what it does, but that doesn't mean you know how it interacts with other cards. It doesn't mean you know you know when you've got a board of these new creatures, how are they going to function when you've got to you know use them to actually do stuff. Um, and so, I think that the, the most fun part of the Vault Tour and ultimately this game is discovering these decks and trying to understand how they work and what they do and the goal of them. And, and I think what's so cool is that in other card games, you have, you have almost like decks named about what they do. You, know, you have control decks, things like that, which don't really apply to Keyforge because they have such unique uh, end goals. They have such unique ways of playing. Um, and I think that trying to figure out what that unique way of playing that deck is, is what's super fun. And on top of that, that unique, unique way of how you want to play as well as, as, a, as just a Keyforge player yourself. And not only is the Vault Tour unique in that way, but it's also unique in its ability to be an event for every kind of player. Um, this has been something that's been spoken about on social media recently. Newer players may be feeling like the Vault Tour's a big event, it's for competitive players only. That is simply not the case. Uh, competitive players, yes, the Vault Tour is for you. But beginner players, the Vault Tour is also for you. If you have a grasp on the rules, if you if you know the basics of Keyforge, then there's absolutely no reason why you can't turn up to an event, get a good sealed deck, and run with it and have a good have a good go. Absolutely, and the the guy that won, John, is that was actually a new player himself. No way. Um, yeah, he he had only been playing for a couple of weeks or something like that, and he with his brother, and he just turned up and he won a vault tour, which is amazing. Um, and I have a, I have a great anecdote about my top eight game, I believe. Um, I was playing against a opponent who I I want to say had only been playing for like two days. Like he was brand new to the game, and. He, he that was the closest game I had to losing. Um, I almost went out that that round um, and ended up winning because I uh, played Gonguzel, which allowed me to discard a card from their hand, and the card I discarded was Glimmer, which meant that they couldn't play their key charge, and I won the game. Now Gonguzel is a discard which deals three damage to your opponent's creature, um, and when it deals three damage or when it deals any amount of damage it gives you the opportunity to discard an opponent's card from their hand as long as that creature doesn't die. Um, and Glimmer is a new untamed card from AOA, which has an alpha playability. And once you play it, you can draw a card from your discard pile, which is super powerful, especially when you have something like Key Charge, because you can Key Charge, play Glimmer, and Key Charge in the future. 
Um, however, because it's sealed, I had no idea he had Glimmer. I had no idea he had Key Charge. I hadn't seen any of these cards yet. And he had, like, two Lollops, which are 11-power creatures. He had an Ogopogo, which is a six-power creature. And he was doing everything to keep these creatures alive. So I was thinking, okay, right, he's got this card called Might Makes Right, which, again, is a new AOA card. And as a key cheat, it allows you to forge a key by sacrificing creatures um, up to 25 power, I believe. It's a Brobnar card. It's a Brobnar yeah. card, yeah. yeah. So when you have those huge creatures, you know, two lollops with 11 power, that's 22 power with just two creatures. All you need is a, is a Groggins or something a lot smaller. Exactly. And um, so I, I was like, he has this card. I know he has this card. In my brain, I was thinking, as I'm a good, smart, intelligent Keyforge player, I know he has this card. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. My my own um I guess I guess me trying to outsmart my opponent actually potentially almost led to my demise. Um and that was that was just a really fun interaction. It kind of it allowed me to kind of I guess look at it in a different way and go, okay, well maybe I I rather than trying to play reactively, I've got to play more aggressively in certain situations. Um, and it really taught me a lot about my deck and potentially about other people's decks. The instinct or analysis uh, difficulty of decision, yeah, yeah, almost over analyzing, over like yeah. over complicating the situation. And I think that a, a high pressure competitive uh, scenario like the Vault Tour really kind of condenses that and helps you kind of have a better grasp of how to deal with that situation. But no matter how high pressure the Vault Tour is, it is also a welcoming environment for newer players. And if you're a newer player and you get put up against a more experienced player like Finn, I'm sure you are not going to feel like you're having a, a difficult time. It's it's always friendly at the Voltor. That's my experience of it anyway. Absolutely. I met some really amazing people, some people who absolutely stumped me and some people who I also absolutely stumped. But we all we all love Keyforge. We were all there for that kind of the same reason, the same enjoyability. And I think that... Um, I think that if you are new to Keyforge, just going to a Vault Tour is what's going to really cement your your in your passion for this game. So we're going to talk a bit now about sealed play and things specific to sealed play, what happens when you open a pack, that kind of thing. But first of all, we'll explain what the difference is between a normal store-based sealed event and something like a Vault Tour. And that is not just the pressure that Finn just mentioned, but also... Generally, when you're playing in a store tournament, you get one sealed deck. So you have one deck, you're able to look through it, get an idea of the combos, the many synergies, its weaknesses, how to play with it, and that's comfortable. You don't need to make a decision there. But when you're at a Vault Tour, you will have three decks, and that's a decision to make because you'll have to take those three decks and in half an hour decide which one to use. Now, I'm a bad example here because I made a really bad decision at the Birmingham Vault Tour. I know a lot of people who did. <laughs> I took the deck that had some awesome combos in it, but I completely threw the rulebook out the window. Everything I'd been thinking beforehand of the need to have amber control, need to have uh, amber generation, need to have some strong removal cards in there, a bit of artifact control, all of that went out the window. I had that deck there but I didn't play it. And I didn't play it because of my pre-existing biases about certain houses. So instead I played another deck. I played a deck that was great fun to play, 
but it only really got the strategy off about 25% of the time, which isn't ideal when you're at a vault tour. So Finn, you made the right decision with your deck, clearly, unless you have three completely overpowered decks. So how did you make that decision under the time pressure? Yeah, so I actually did have three decent decks. I wouldn't say any of them were overpowered. None of them were crazy, but I could look at them all and and understand why they would all be pretty consistently good decks. Um, For me, I really wanted to figure out, one, what my play strategy was going to be going forward for the next two days, and two, what was going to kind of beat out other players more than decks because ultimately you you might run into a counter deck and you might have the best deck in the world but your opponent's got the right cards and draws the right at the right time and just completely dismantles your deck and it sounded like that happened right in the final when you didn't want it to happen yeah well that was really interesting because our decks were almost identical in my opinion his deck was just a little bit better had a little bit more answers than mine did um but ultimately I ended up choosing a Amber Rush deck. It has 18 Amber generation, um, just from the cards alone, and that's something which is is, is more than above average, um, particularly for Age of Ascension, which is typically lower in terms of Amber generation, and in terms of expected Amber, it could be said as well. Absolutely, and that alongside two very very important cards in the deck, which was. Heart of the Forest and Lash of Broken Dreams, which is a massive amount of amber control. Um, and and uh, to explain, Heart of the Forest is an artifact. It's an untamed card. It has an amber pip. And it says each player cannot forge keys whilst they have more forged keys than their opponent. So the first time I read this, I went, wow, what is this? How does it work? And I think this this is a card that really typifies why I love the design of this game. So how did you use this card in, in the deck? Yeah, so this deck for me was almost like a, like a safety net. It was, okay, if I'm against a deck which has even more amber generation than I do, and again, going into this, we didn't really know what we were going to see out of AOA. Um, I was like, okay, well, this, this is going to prevent my opponent from just rushing me. Um, but in certain situations where... My opponent was playing really slow. They were very amber controly. They maybe had a huge sanctum board or something like that, and they weren't doing much. I would just discard the card. I would just drop it because I was so far ahead in amber. I knew I could win in the next three turns. But if I played Heart of the Forest, I would have to wait for them to catch up, and that wasn't really a, a plausible you know, scenario. So you said you had three good packs to choose from. Was Heart of the Forest the card that swung it for you? I think that. The the amber generation is what is what swung it for me. I think Heart of the Forest just seemed really interesting. I wanted to play the card, um, which I think is dictates a lot of decision making when it comes to Keyforge and their players, because you want to play a deck no matter how bad it is, just because it has this one card that you love. Whether it's the art, whether it's the mechanics, whether it's the design, you know, it's just a really fun and cool play. My mistake at the Vault Tour was precisely around that. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the house combinations, this is actually, you know, it's not my my favorite house combination, but I could see the benefits and I could see going forward, okay, people aren't really going to know how to deal with amber uh, generation, a lot of amber generation. We don't know what the what the key cards are to stop that. Obviously, in Kota, you have Doorstep to Heaven, you have Too Much to Protect, you have 
you had bait and switch before the errata. Um, and in AOA, we didn't really know what existed in that term. So my, my approach was simply, I'm just going to gain all the amber in the world, forge as keys as fast as possible, and I'm not even going to give my opponent the opportunity to try and deal with it. Which makes sense, because with the, the many different strategies that decks have in this game, if you've got something like a board strategy, what's your board there to do? It's to help you to forge amber. If you're, forging, if, you're, if you're making amber, if you've got a deck that wants to generate amber as its strategy, then in some ways that's the most clean strategy in the game. So uh, certainly a good idea to do, go with when there's a less figured out meta, I suppose. For, for, for our listeners, you can, you can look at this deck. Um, we have it in the show notes below. It's, uh, there's a link to decks of Keyforge where you can you can look at this deck as we discuss it. You can see the cards, you can see the wins, you can see the scores and the stats and all the different attributes of the deck. Um, so so open that up and we'll, as we we'll, as we talk through it. Another big contribution to my decision making was the name. The deck is called the Poor Duke, which is an awesome name. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. Um, and I thought it would just be really cool to. Uh, to win with, you know, to win with the poor Duke. And you so nearly did. I nearly you did. so nearly did. So before you make that kind of decision, what process do you go through when you're evaluating a new deck? Some people certainly, the first thing they do is they count all the creatures in the deck or they look at the expected amber generation from the deck or they look at a set number of things like the board wipe, the artifact control, different features that they can expect from the deck. Others maybe look at individual cards and say, hey, I really want this card. I'm going to go with it. How do you look at a deck? Do you have a structured way of looking at sealed decks or do you go with the flow a little bit more? Yeah, so I have a pretty straightforward way of looking at decks uh, when I open them as a sealed sealed game. Um, and the, the two biggest important factors are how much amber do you gain just right out the bat? How many cards do you have printed amber? Um and that's going to be a big insight into what the play of what the what the flow of the deck is going to be. Are you going to be just playing cards out of your hand simply to gain the amber, or are you going to be holding on to them to try and get the, get those combos and play those longer plays? Um, if you only have say five to ten amber generation or, or, or printed amber, you've then got to look further into the deck to see what kind of plays you can have and what kind of combos you can have to gain huge amounts of amber in, say, one turn with a couple of different cards. Um, the second aspect is amber control. Your opponent is also doing the same thing. They're trying to see how much amber they can gain, and you need to understand what your deck can do to combat that. You know, If you have a Lash of Broken Dreams, a discard artifact, um, which will, upon action make your opponent's cost cut keys cost plus three their next turn that's going to be a consistent card which is always going to make your opponent um which is always going to be a challenge to your opponent when it comes to forging keys um alongside that you've got cards like doorstep to heaven you've got cards like in the previous set too much to protect you've got uh interdimensional graft these are all cards which should be standing out to you as okay well how what kind of plays am I going to be doing based around those cards? How am I going to be using this deck to prevent my opponent from forging more keys than me or from getting too far ahead? 
So when you look at a deck and it doesn't have many amber pips, it sounds like that means you're going to look at it more from what grand schemes can I really do with this deck? What big plays can I set up? What can I achieve? And it's more based on looking at the individual cards rather than trying to coax out the statistics from a deck you've just opened. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of decks are really straightforward to play and a lot of decks are really, really hard to play. Um, my number one suggestion would be pick an easy deck. Pick a deck which is straightforward, which you're never going to be you know, umming and ahhing about whether you mulligan this hand, whether you play a certain strategy this game, whether you play a certain strategy this game. You're very much, you know exactly what you're doing the second you sit down. You have a play, you have a strategy, um, you know what the cards you want in your starting hand, you know what cards you want at the end of the game. You know what cards you want in your discard pile as soon as possible. If you are, say, a if you've got a, a a deck with a lot of artifacts, a lot of creatures, you are knowing what you you know what you want to look for. You know what kind of artifacts you want to get out as fast as possible. You know what creatures you want to get out, which you're going to benefit from those art, uh, artifacts. Um, and there there is a lot of aspect of understanding what those cards are going to do for you in the long term and what cards aren't going to do anything for you is another really important aspect. Knowing what cards to discard, knowing what cards um, to just play for amber generation, knowing that you know if you have a Yurk, for example, which is a discard in AOA, which allows you to discard, which forces you, in fact, to discard cards from your hand, whether it's one, two, or three, based on the type of Yurk you have, um, knowing which targets you want to want to discard um or targets of that card um because a lot of the time because you might actually want to discard yurk instead of playing it yeah because depending yeah. on your hand you might go okay well i need these four cards and if i play yurk i'm gonna to have to get rid of one or maybe two of them um so simply discarding yurk is an easy decision and you should be able to know that that's the decision you want to make before you even start playing the game. And particularly with, you mentioned the, the Yurks where you have to discard two or three with Ancient Yurk, the card where you have to discard three cards from your hand, that can be particularly painful. Whereas one can be quite often a breath of fresh air, you get through your cards a bit more quickly, you get to get rid of that card that's just not going to be handy for you right now. With an Ancient Yurk, you're probably going to be forced out of playing cards that you just don't want to have leaving your hand. Absolutely. And I, I, I like to look at it as a form of draw, in fact. Discarding a card from your hand that's not in your house or not in the dis house allows you to draw an extra card at the end of your turn, which is going to give you a big advantage the next turn. Um, and so in, in, in a backwards way and in, in, in the dis way is a form of, dis, is a form of um, draw. So we've talked a bit about the cards that people really need to look for. And um, I, I mean, ironically, for anyone looking at the poor Duke as we talk about it, it probably doesn't have the most easy cards to play in it. There's a lot of complex strategies, a lot of grand schemes in there. Um, but we've talked a bit about ease of play as well. For our newer players, maybe, what are the must-haves? What are the things that you would you would be concerned going into any Keyforge contest if you didn't have these things in your sealed deck? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't think there's any specific cards that I'm looking for. It's more about, um, I guess, the, 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 the strength of the deck comes with what it's able to do effectively. And based on what it's able to do effectively will be determined by those cards. Um, 
for example, with the poor Duke, it has two Exhumes. Exhume is one of the strongest cards, in my opinion, that has come from this in the new set. Gains you in one... In the game. Yeah, the absolutely. Game. It gains you one Amber Pip and allows you to play a card, a creature, in fact, from your discard pile, straight into play, no matter the house. With the poor Duke, this works perfectly. With a card like Fuzzy Groom, for example, which immediately gains you two Amber, that's a card which can be killed over and over and over again and continuously gains you the benefits of that card. And I also notice you have a copy of Ronnie Wrist Clocks in the deck as well. And this is essentially, um, I hate to say this because it is a cracking card with amazing art in its own right, but it is a Shadows card that is essentially a bait and switch with a body. Um, So what I mean by that is it has a play effect, steal one. If your opponent has seven or more, steal two instead. It also has amazing flavor text and it says, you look like an Archon with discriminating tastes. Crazy. But essentially with Exhume, what you can do with this card is bring it back again and again and again. Get that two, get that one steal, maybe even get that two steal under certain circumstances. And that's just an amazing combo. How many times did that come off for you over the Voltor? At least 50% of my games, I was I was consistently pulling that off. Um, and but there's a lot of ways to kill your own creatures in this deck. There's a lot of ways to kind of get them off the board um, and back into your discard pile, which then obviously is great because you can exhume them again and you kind of have this constant influx of amber generation. So there's so much to talk about in the poor Duke it is an absolutely cracking deck. But Finn, is there anything that really stands out for you? What makes this deck unique? What enabled you to get to the position you got to with this deck? Yeah, so one of the things that immediately standard stood out to me was um, the Opal Knight Maverick. So normally Opal Knight is a sanctum creature that has five power and once played will destroy all even powered creatures on the board, including your own. And this can be a devastating play to both players. Um, In my situation where I almost never wanted a board and my opponent normally had a a way stronger board than I did, this was a a perfect drop it down, clear the board. And every single time my opponent was like, what is that? What card? I don't don't know what that card is. It looks weird. Um, And one of the really cool things about it was the art, obviously, is this really kind of heavenly looking knight from sanctum but going into battle with a, a staff in one hand yeah yeah it's, it's such it's such cool it's probably the other than the onyx knight which is the dis variant of the of the knight um which destroys all odd powers creatures i think that i think the open is probably one of my favorite pieces of art in the whole game and the uh, the two the two cards can be put together and make one picture as well yeah, absolutely. They're kind of like opposite ends of a battlefield, which is so cool. And again, really typifies that difference between Sanctum and Dis overall. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I would love to see kind of more stark contrasts of those houses. And then because when you get those Mavericks, it's so cool. And it makes you really question the the, the design aspects of the game. And it allows you to play it allows you to play cards that were never intended to be played that way effectively. Um so to have an Opal Knight in House Dis, normally the house where you would have that Oinks Knight, I mean, how did that affect your, your game design? Of course, one of the negatives there is the 
the Oinks Knight, which has an effect of destroy each creature with odd power, is normally quite good to be in disc because disc generally has creatures with odd power. Yes, yeah, so one of the one of the really cool things about the Opal Knight in Dis as a Maverick card was the fact that when I was playing against Sanctum creatures or Sanctum, you know, heavy Sanctum boards, almost all Sanctum boards are even powered. There's lots of six powers, there's lots of four powers, and so I was able to just destroy these huge boards which are really oppressive and potentially like hoarding like six of my amber that I really wanted back and I couldn't kill because I had no real other board clears. This was a perfect way to just drop, wipe the board, get all my amber back and completely switch the switch the, the game up, really. So um, in having it as a maverick, it actually made the card even stronger in a way. Absolutely. I, I think if I hadn't had I had an Onyx Knight in this deck, it would have been really cool, but I definitely wouldn't have made some, some drastic plays that I made during the Vault Tour. And that's something which is so unique to one the vault tour two to seal play and three to this game i think simply that card and the kind of plays that i had with that card is such a such a fun experience that you just wouldn't get anywhere else and that's not the only removal you had in the deck either is it finn you had uh, some of those what what he describes as cheeky damage cards such as nerve blast not only impact your opponent's amber supply but also deal two damage to a creature and you had harder hitting things like uh, life for a life which allows you to sacrifice a creature to deal six damage to a creature so it seems that in every house you at least had something a way of destroying creatures a way of managing things and a way of keeping your opponent at bay yeah absolutely another great card is sucker punch which is an alpha card deals two damage and if you kill a creature you put it straight back into your archive it also gains you an amber so this card was you know, sometimes one of the most effective cards in the game because I was able to kill multiple really, really you know, threatening Logos cards was normally the situation Professor I was in. Stutterkin and even the, all of the witches. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it, and it really, really, really helped me just consistently keep that board clear along with the, uh, the double nerve blast, which gave me that amber, killed those creatures, and life for a life, which is kind of a double whammy in this deck because you can kill one of your own creatures, which you can then later exhume, and you can also <laughs> kill your opponent's creatures. So I'm interested in this deck. There is one thing that uh, for some of our more experienced listeners, they'll be looking at this and they'll be thinking, well, that probably doesn't quite sit so well with the deck. And that's Soldiers to Flowers. Um, in a deck where there's only three creatures, how useful uh, in the Untamed lineup, how useful and how effective was that card for you? So I actually think Soldiers to Flowers works perfectly in this deck because you don't have a big enough Untamed board to do anything effective. So ultimately, those creatures are kind of useless. So why not just purge them out your deck and just have a have a smaller, more consistent deck that you can draw through and gain more amber ultimately? The only card that it kind of hurts is Fuzzy Gruen. But ultimately, if you've played it once or you've played it twice through Exhume, it's you you've kind of got you've got the most out of it. You've effectively almost gained a whole key from it. Um, so purging it doesn't really hurt too much. And ultimately, I think, helps thin the deck out and make it a little bit more efficient. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us, Finn. And I guess another thing about Sealed, if you're listening to this in a year's time or something, 
the sealed meta is going to be completely different because we're going to have a set that is only in the heads of some of the designers currently. So if you're looking at it then, match up this, be adaptable to whatever the meta is, whatever's going on. Of course, AOA presents us with a, a massively different sealed environment to Call of the Archons. From my perspective, at least, um, I think we see a much more even playing field for different sealed decks. Decks seem to have their strengths and weaknesses in terms of matchups. You might have an artifact deck that really hates going up against some artifact controlly decks. You might have a board deck against someone with no board wipes. But at the same time, these decks are going to thrive in their own space. And it's much harder to find those decks that really do beat everything um, or don't win against anything on the other side of the coin. Um, so, Finn, what would your advice be to, to, to listeners on that regard? Yeah, that, that's 100% correct. You always have a different meta every single time you play a, a sealed tournament or even just casually. Um, and I recently was playing a sealed adaptive tournament. Um, and one of the great things about that was the deck that I pulled was a 26 creature deck. Wow. Um, with this huge Mars board. And the uh, normally I would look at this deck and go, nope. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to play that or, you know, I won't be bringing this to any Archon events because it didn't tick those boxes that I wanted. It didn't have the Amber generation. It had less than, um, it didn't quite have enough Amber control I wanted. It potentially would have been really, really, really harmed by uh, a Kota deck with lots of um, board wipes. However, I was playing AOA Sealed and I looked at this deck and I thought, okay, I know how to make this work. I know how to punish my opponents who can't destroy my board. And that isn't as likely in um, in AOA, especially in Sealed. And one of the really cool things about this deck is it had two Mars creatures, which gave all Martian creatures plus one armor. Wow. And so I just had this stacked board full of Martians that just could not be killed. That's almost a sanctum play normally, getting the armor out, getting the big creatures out and uh, camping down until your opponent seems to find a board wipe. But as you say, in AOA, those board wipes are fewer and further between. Absolutely. And one of the, one of the things I was able to identify with this deck was that it didn't need draw effectively because each play was so powerful and so significant to the board that was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger the the lack of draw really didn't harm it which meant going forward being you know playing adaptive i was able to take chains onto my deck and not really feel the negative effects of it um only having five cards in my in my deck in my hand wasn't that big of a deal because i was only playing two cards but i was mainly playing the board more than out of my hand which is the complete opposite to how the poor duke works which is don't use the board at all. It's completely useless. Just get everything out of your hand as fast as possible and draw through that deck as fast as possible. And I think being able to being able to be aware that this is what your deck does and this is what your deck does well is what's going to ultimately help you in that situation and win you those games. Absolutely. So summing up now our discussion on sealed play, um, it sounds like our, our advice to, to listeners here is actually... Use your instinct when it comes to looking at decks. Um, look for those cards that look comfortable, that you want to play with. Find a deck that's that looks easy to play with, 
that you feel comfortable with that's a good fit for you. Um, maybe if there's a deck, it might have a really cool card in it. But if you don't feel comfortable with pulling it off in advance for if you're doing a major tournament or something, go with the one that you feel most comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you being able to play your deck to the best of your ability is what is going to win you those games. Having the best deck is not necessarily the way forward. Um, my final tip, though, would be you pick a deck that you're going to have fun with and enjoy the deck. You don't want to be playing a deck that you're not going to enjoy. For example, my brother, Ollie, picked a deck with four key cheats. It had two Night Forges, a key charge, and a Chotahazri. And he knew it wasn't going to be a great deck. He knew he probably wasn't going to win the Vault Tour with it, but he had a blast with it. And that is what ultimately is what's important. Absolutely. And, and on that as well, uh, to not find yourself in the position that I found myself in that previous Vault Tour, check your confirmation bias. Um, I didn't used to like playing Mars, so I ignored the Mars house. Uh, that didn't work so well for me. Particularly if you don't own many decks or you're heading into a brand new meta, just take a fresh perspective at these cards and, and look at them anew and uh, use your analysis head a little bit, but with your instinct too. So thanks again to Finn, Keyforge at its heart is a unique deck game. So whether it be for an eclectic combo, an exciting strategy, or just a really great name, like the poor Duke, amazing. Everyone has a deck that feels truly unique to them, or in Finn's case, probably multiple decks. Join us next week for our deck discovery episode. Finn's going to share his most unique deck. So Finn, any hints to our listeners about what's going to be in the deck you share next week? Um, just some just some crazy Mars stuff going on. Mar- Mars and uh, I think Mars has a um, has a habit of doing stuff that your opponent really really doesn't like you doing. Grand schemes, grand schemes. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of long term plays. I'm getting the feeling that you enjoy decks that really kind of encapsulate those old wacky races, dick dastardly kind of kind of schemes um so thanks again to finn please let us know have we missed anything what do you do when you first open a sealed deck how do you approach it is there anything you look for that we have just failed to say let us know and let the community know let us also know what you want to see more of or less of in future shows. We are just getting started with this podcast and we plan to stick around. So we want to hear your feedback. Please subscribe on your regular podcast app and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and you can email us questions at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. Most importantly, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them discover it. Thanks for listening.